Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals, made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show.
This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Well, the word copain, it's a close friend, and it actually is a derivation of the word pain, which is bread, P-A-I-N-S. Um, it's a person you break bread with. And it's very interesting learning French because you learn all, why the words are a certain way, and it also trains your brain to think differently. That was Paris-based food writer David Leibovitz. After over a decade of renting an apartment in Paris, David decided to buy. Now, that simple decision resulted in a cascade of disasters and also a new book entitled Apart, The Delights and Disasters of Making My Paris Home. So if you've ever wanted to buy a small place in Europe, you might just want to listen to this interview first. But before that, our own Catherine Smart journeys to a Boston neighborhood to interview the owner of a restaurant that serves Nepalese dumplings, the Spicy Momo. Hi, my name is Sofia Takali, and I'm the owner and a cook at Tasty Momo in Somerville, Massachusetts. Momo, you can have it for breakfast, snacks, lunch, dinner, however you like it. So you make momos today and you have leftover, then you can have it next day for breakfast. I have Catherine in the studio today to tell us what Sofia Takali told her about how to make the spicy variation of the Chinese dumpling. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Chris? I thought I knew a lot about dumplings, but I guess not. Uh, in Nepal, there are dumplings that are filled with goat and buffalo meat. Very different uh, tradition, of course, than what I'm used to. And it uh, turns out there's a Nepalese dumpling spot right here in Boston, in Somerville, which is one of our neighborhoods. Uh, and you went and uh, ate those dumplings. I did, Chris, and they were delicious. Um, I went to Tasty Momo in Somerville, as you mentioned, and it's owned by Sophia Takali. She is from Nepal originally. She grew up in a very rural area and then went to school in Kathmandu. And she came to the States thinking she was going to be a CPA, but she just couldn't stop thinking about Momo. So Momo, that's the Nepalese term for these sort of dumplings, M-O-M-O, and that's the name of the, the restaurant too, right? That's right, Chris. So the, the restaurant is Tasty Momo because the specialty is these Momo, these particular kind of dumplings. And they do look a lot like Chinese dim sum. The exterior is a wheat wrapper, very similar to a Chinese dumpling. She said you could even use a Chinese dumpling wrapper. And then the interior is a minced meat, either goat, like you said, or more popular here, uh, ground pork or ground chicken. Are the spices very different, the flavor profile? Why is this Nepalese versus, you know, Cantonese or something else? Yeah, so there are some warm spices in there that you might not see in, in dim sum, like some coriander, cumin, and also the sauce makes a big difference. So Momo are generally served with a dipping sauce, uh, a tomato-based. It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit spicy. She uses... Roma tomatoes, and she fries them in some oil, and that's blended with some Szechuan pepper, also some fresh chilies. It's really interesting. It's It reminded me a lot of kind of Italian grandmother's Sunday gravy. Everybody makes their Momo a little bit different. All right, so we have two different kind of sauces. Uh, one is chili, the other one is uh, tomato. So everybody, they ask me questions like, is the tomato made out of dairy? Because it looks like it looks like it's made out of dairy, but it is not. It's only tomatoes, and then it has Sichuan pepper in it that I bring all the way from Nepal to make it taste flavorful. It's the flavor. That's why it's so good. So she doesn't have a big Momo machine in the back. 
that they cranks these things out. This is all done by hand. Everything? Yes, no, it's all it's all <laughs> handiwork. She does order the dumpling wrappers. Uh, pre-made, but that actually I think is kind of a boon for home cooks. So like if you don't have a Momo shop in your hometown, she says it's something you could certainly make at home using those grocery store dumpling wrappers. So if I'm a home cook, I don't want to do this at home. You buy the wrapper, fill it, you know, wet it and wrap it. It's pretty straightforward. Now I have to say making your Momo look as beautiful as the little accordion wrapped Momo that they make in the shop. At least I found that a bit tricky. I think it takes some practice, but here's what Sophie had to say, Chris. We usually ground all our meats here, but when I'm really busy, I buy it from the store, like the grounded. We, you can find it in Restaurant Depot if you want to, but usually all the meats are grounded here. This is um, pork meat, pork grounded meat with uh, cilantro, scallion. Cilantro is for the um, smell, scallion is for the flavor. And then I have my own secret ingredients over here, and then salt, ginger, you can put, you can add some oil too for the juice, and just mix it very nicely, uh, so that the meat becomes tender. I put it overnight. So when you bite into it, you know you're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, the, the cumin, the chili sauce with the tomato base, it's it's a richer, sort of heartier version of a dumpling. Yeah, it is, and it's a little bit sweeter with that with that tomato. A little bit, like I said, it has those warming spices, and it's just unlike anything that I've. I've tried in the U.S. before. They sound great, but I love the name Momo. I mean, it's just going to have to catch on. Catherine, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. That was Most Reads Catherine Smart reporting from Tasty Momo from Somerville, Massachusetts. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all your shows downloaded right onto your phone. Right now, my esteemed co-host, Sarah Malton, and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Lauren from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Hi, Lauren. How can we help you? So, yeah, I made um, the Persian omelet recipe that I found at Milk Street, and I loved it. It was really good, but I had a problem with separation. So it seemed like the top two-thirds kept all the herbs and the nuts and everything in it, but the bottom third was, like, a really light green color, didn't have any of the herbs in it, and you could, like, really distinctly see all the air bubbles. And I'm just wondering why that happened and what I can do to fix that. So it doesn't happen next time. Well, it happened to me once, too. We're supposed to tell the truth. Didn't your mother tell you to tell the truth? Yes, yes, Chris. She did. And someone asked me that question when I served it, and I made up something about it was a two-layer cuckoo Persian I know. Julia Child said, never apologize, (laughs) never explain. I just said, well, that's the way, because you get all the nuts and the herbs on the top, and then you get, you know. I wonder if overbeating might make that happen. I think that you mentioned air bubbles, and a lot of times mm-hmm. I I think I've looked at the recipe and it says to beat it just until it's combined. I think so. You know, a lot of time with eggs, you, you know how much volume they can get. If you do overbeat mm-hmm. it, it creates the uh, totally different textures. Do you think maybe you did? I could have. Yeah, I was also wondering if it's because I did it in um, a glass pan instead of like a cake pan, like it said that had anything to do with it? No, I don't think so. Mine was a regular cake pan. I mean, I think overbeating could have done it. I think that would be it. 
Okay. But but you know what? It's one of those it's things. It's like no. if you've ever made a custard, you know, a baked custard, and you've mixed it yeah. up, they say don't beat the egg sugar mixture too much because you will develop too much air, and then you get these okay. weird bubbles inside. So this sounds similar to that situation. Yeah. That's a hard habit to break sometimes. I know. It it's sort of fun. So thoroughly, but, yeah. Well, yeah. In t- 20 years from now, or 40 years from now, when you get to be my age, whatever, you will realize that this does not qualify as culinary disaster. This, 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 this is still just fine. No, you yeah. never apologize, never explain, just reposition. Right. So like Chris said, it's Pivot. a two-layered, two-layered Persian omelet, you know? That's what I'll it is. I'll have to keep that in mind. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So no problem. Well, uh, don't so worry about it. Help. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi. This is Jenny Lee Adrian from Wausau, Wisconsin. And do you have a question? Yes. My question is, what is the difference between Ceylon cinnamon and Saigon cinnamon, and what are the best uses for each? Well, actually, I did a blind tasting of this a few years ago, and Ceylon cinnamon is totally different. I wouldn't even say it's on the sweet side. It would actually be very good in savory dishes as well. So if you're used to cinnamon, like a cinnamon cookie or cinnamon in your apple pie, it's totally different. And I wouldn't substitute it unless you, you know, smell it beforehand. You're Saigon- saying you wouldn't substitute the salon. S- Saigon is, you know, cinnamon as we're used to it. So salon is the one cinnamon that's a standout. As I said, it's very floral. It has a really interesting flavor. But I would say it's probably as good with savory dishes as it is for dessert. Sarah? Well, uh, the Saigon, also known as the Vietnamese, is stronger and is what we're more used to here. I don't even know if I've ever tasted the salon. My impression was that it was milder, but totally different. I mean, they all come from, what is it, uh, evergreen trees. So are you asking because you're sick of regular cinnamon? Well, I had heard about salon cinnamon, and I decided to buy it just to try it, but I don't know much about it. So have you opened the jar yet? No, I haven't used it yet. What I would do is open... Do you have the jar there, by the way? Not in front of me, no. Well, I was just saying, you should just open the top of it and take a whiff because you'll be surprised. It's nothing like cinnamon. I think you should start with that. You know, I think it would be great in, I think it would be great like in a curry or something like that. I think it would add a terrific flavor. Whether you want to put it into, you know, a cookie or not, uh, that would be up to you. I would close your eye, open the top, close your eyes, and take a big whiff of it because it's as different from cinnamon as, you know, let's say all spices from cinnamon. It's just a very different thing entirely. Okay. I like it, but I wouldn't substitute it in recipes where you're used to cinnamon because it's a different spice. So, okay. Anyway, that would be my advice. Take a big whiff and then you tell me. Okay, great. Thank okay. you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye. This is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or a complaint, or if you just want to try to call and stump us, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843. Or simply send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? It's Ed. Hi, Ed. What is your question? My question is, can I make peppermint oil? I buy it, and it's so expensive at the herbal store. And I use it to, first of all, deter mice in the basement. And it also helps freshen the old farmhouse. 
And I was wondering, is there a way of making it myself because it gets so expensive? So you're not making it to eat. Can I just comment? We've never had this question before. No, I like this question. <laughs> I like you this You know what? Question. It made me think when I was in Provence and we went to a lavender farm and they told us that lavender is a natural insect repellent. So I'm interested to hear that peppermint is a natural mouse repellent. That's really good can, news. Can I ask a question? Are there different kinds of peppermint and you have to use just the right kind to be effective? You're asking me. Yeah, well, hey, I'm We're not, supposed okay. to know. I don't know the answer. We're to supposed that. to know. Well, peppermint, I think, is the spiciest of the mints. So get a bunch of peppermint leaves and put them in a bowl and muddle them a bit, like as if you're making a cocktail. I uh, tried that. And what happened? I, I used a corn oil. Yeah. And uh-huh. it just didn't work for me. Maybe I didn't put enough peppermint leaves in. You really need to pack them in. Did you press them down and all that? I mean, muddle them a bit, bruise them? I, well, not really. I. Uh, tore them up, and I put them in a blender, and I put them back in, and I oh. put the corn oil in. Maybe you need a more neutral oil. Let me ask a related question. How much does it cost to buy a small bottle of peppermint oil? About two to four ounces. It could be anywhere from 15 to $35. Oh. oh, wow. Okay, okay. So you've Googled this, right? What do they say online about how to do this? They said to do uh, an oil. Yeah corn oil or whatever, and peppermint oil, and what you said, muddle them, Right. but I put them in the blender, and I left them overnight. Maybe I should have left them longer. Yeah, you can't leave them overnight. It's got to be a few days to extract the flavor. A few days. Yeah, okay. I would say at least three or four days to extract oh, the flavor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's another thought. Warm the oil slightly, not hot, but right. warm. That might help, too. Oh, great. And, and also the corn I oil, I wouldn't would not be my first choice. No. I would use, I use grapeseed oil a lot now, so it's very neutral. Safflower. Grapeseed is expensive. Safflower is but more not affordable. Corn oil. No, yeah. I think corn no. oil is just too strong. It is too strong. Another thing you should do is after three days, strain out the oil right. and see how strong it is. If it's not that strong, I'd repeat. The you process. might have to do it two or three times to get the right With amount of peppermint in it. Yeah. You know? Okay, great. Well, that's great. great. You taught us something. So mice, huh? I love oh, it. it. Really, it does work. Believe me. I spray the basement, and sometimes I put cotton balls with the oil on them. And last year, I had no problem because it's an older farmhouse, and I found that out just by accident. Yeah. Well, try that and try it for three days and do it two or three times and see. Uh, I will. That's great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Paris-based food writer David Leibovitz. After the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with uh, emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the past making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood. And our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them. So it's nice and crispy. Uh, we do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel, 
and then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting uh, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create and you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin star restaurant like Main Street Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. David Leibovitz worked at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, and then in 2004, he moved to Paris to write a food blog about his life in Paris. Then he got the bright idea to purchase an apartment instead of just renting one. Well, of course, that led to a series of unfortunate encounters and a rich understanding of the suspicious bureaucratic French psyche, which is the engine that drives the narrative in his latest book, La Part, The Delights and Disasters of Making My Paris Home. So talk to me about when did you move to Paris? Why did you move to Paris? And where were you living in Paris before you got the uh, determination to buy an apartment? Well, I moved to Paris sometime between 2003-2004. I'm not sure exactly the date. But I moved because I was sort of at a place in my life where I didn't really have anything else to do. I was be- I was doing more writing than actually baking. I wasn't working in a restaurant anymore. And because I lived in Northern California and I'd worked at Chez Panisse for a very long time, I sort of felt a kinship with France, the French culture, the French way of life, and most importantly, the French sort of way of shopping and eating. So it just seemed sort of like a horizontal move to go there. And so off I went. I was living in the 11th arrondissement, which is called the Bastille or the Bastille. That's a neighborhood that is very popular. It's near the Marais. And I'd lived there for maybe nine or ten years. And then... It was time I thought, you know, I'm, I kind of want to stay here. I really like France. I really like Paris. And I want to buy an apartment because if you're going to live in an expensive city, you should always b- try to buy something rather than rent. So that was my first mistake. I was going to say, <laughs> that was your first really bad idea. That's page three yeah. <laughs> of the book. <laughs> so so let's just talk about the French. You know, th- this is not a year in Provence where there's some sort of swarthy charm to all of this. And and the, the difficulty of working with the French is sort of part of the experience in a, you know, lubricated with lots of wine and Calvados way. Mm-hmm. Paris is not Provence. It's a little no. spikier. It's more urban. It's more difficult. So you use the term exigent, demanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are the French demanding? Let's start with that. Well, The word exigeant doesn't have an exact translation into English. Like many words, you know, you're a cook as well. You know, some words, souffle, 
means to breathe, but when you talk about food, is it really? It's not really breathing. It's exhaling or whatever. Um, but Paris is very different. It's like New York differs so much from even Boston or Philadelphia. The vibe is different. Paris is the capital. You know, people move to Paris, um, but it's a lot of people living in a very tight space under difficult circumstances. You know, people see photos of everybody sitting around in cafes, which is very nice. But people also live in these big buildings very close together, and there's noise, there's cigarette smoke, um, you know, and you have neighbors, and there's always things that come up. And, you know, it's, you know, people are very convivial, but there's, you know, of course, tensions that arise in any city, and Paris is no exception. You found a place finally after looking at a number of places. Just tell us about the place you found the owner and in, in what it looked like. Uh, well, it was basically a wreck. I had been, you know, I was living on the top floor of a building for so long that I wanted to only live on the top floor because I didn't want anyone above me. And it was just either the places on the top floors and Paris are too small or everybody else wants them. So they're very valuable. So I decided to go for a, what's called like um, a creative space. <laughs> and I found an old metal shop that had been sort of turned into a residence by a person who was living there. And I was intrigued because I always thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have like a loft in Paris. You know, the word loft, you know, has so much cachet <laughs> nowadays. But, you know, it often means industrial. It's unfinished not a space. space. Right. Yeah, it's unfinished. And, of course, you know, it hadn't been ever really done properly. So a lot of the electricity and so forth was just sort of, as they'd say in French, uh, bricolé. It's a... Uh, it's kind of pieced together like a, a bricoleur is somebody who likes to tinker, like a craftsman. So a lot of it was sort of bricolé, just sort of put together. And I didn't realize how bad it was until I had signed the papers and it was a little late to back out. So, <laughs> um, Merd, ah. <laughs> which you know, usually is a curse word, it means good luck. Could you explain why the word for horse manure, Merd, is good luck? <laughs> Could you explain that? Ah. Why is horse manure good luck? Uh, it's because in the old days, if a play was going to be popular, there'd be a lot of horse manure around the theater because a lot of people would go and park their horses around the theater. So afterwards, there was a lot of poop left over. So if you're going into a situation in France, especially something where you have to present something in front of other people, people will say to you, merde, you know. And then you, actually it's bad luck to say anything back after that. And I know I never figured out why. If you say like, thank you, but so you just leave it at that. So. <laughs> um, your book, La Parte, does have recipes. There's three mm. of them I just want to talk about. The dandelion flatbread, which I thought was mm. fascinating. Pisson Lee is the word for dandelion. Uh, <laughs> what, yeah. Why could you explain why it's called that, please? I don't quite understand. Peace only is dandelion because they believe that dandelion leaves are diuretic. So you would peace, which is urinate, on the bed, oli, which li, L I T S, is the bed. So you become a bedwetter if you eat dandelions. <laughs> um, and I always kind of like that. <laughs> but the Swiss call them dent de lion or lion's teeth, which they look sort of like teeth, which is a little more. Uh, Swiss, I guess I could say. Poetic. Well, <laughs> yes. it's the only case of the Swiss being more poetic than the French, probably. Um, so, so flatbreads is is one of those things. Uh, we've just ran a recipe recently in Milk Street, uh, and a lot of people made it, oddly enough. And so it's one of mm -hmm. those things that I think is not common here. So, so very quickly, how do you throw this together? You use a food processor? You do it by hand? 
How do you do it? I usually do it by hand. It's pretty easy, although a lot of people have a stand mixer, and it's, you know, you know the thing about stand mixers is they're just as easy to clean as a bowl, so... I just do it in my stand mixer often, but sometimes I'll do it by hand, but you don't need one. Um, but it's basically just a simple yeast dough. And what you do is you make the dough, you let it sit, you let it rise, and you roll it out and put cheese on it and then bake it. Just that you don't have to worry about putting all these different toppings on it because everything's going to go on fresh. So if you make like a standard pizza, sometimes, you know, you throw it in the oven and all the ingredients fall off or you have to get a peel, which is one of those big flat spade-like tools to put the pizza in. And I'm terrible with a peel. I I never worked the pizza station when I worked at Chez Panisse. So. <laughs> but this one is just baked on a sheet or a steel a baking steel or baking stone. Um, you know, you're talking about Americans. You were surprised people ate flatbread or made the recipe from your magazine. But I think it's because most cultures that make flatbreads, they eat them with the food. They don't use utensils. So if you go to Lebanon or Africa, uh, everything comes out with flatbread. So this is a great flatbread because everything on it's fresh. It's kind of like a big salad with crispy bread underneath with cheese. And I actually mm. love this recipe. Um, pain perdu caramelisé. There we go. Um, could you just explain what pain perdu is and what your version is like? Well, pain perdu means lost bread, and it's sort of what we call in America French toast. And it's leftover bread that is lost, that's no longer good for anything else, and you dip it in egg or milk and cream, and you fry it. And I was eating lunch at a restaurant one day in Paris. I had this really good French toast, and it came out, and there was this crust of caramelized sugar on it. And I was like, it was hard, like hard sugar. And they didn't blowtorch it. They, I went in the kitchen and was watching them. And the manager gave me his contact info. And he said, oh, just call me. I'll, you know, I'll let you know. Um, of course, he never returned any of my phone calls for about a year. And so I ended up coming up with it myself. And I come up with a version. It's very simple to make, actually. You just can't, you know, you put the sugar on the bread and then you fry it until it's crispy. And it's really, really, really good. Uh, and, and a more charming one, a copain. Copain. Which I never, I guess if I had half a brain, I could just look at the word. You want to just explain what copain means and where it comes from? Well, the word copain, it comes from the word, it actually means friend, mon copain. It's a close friend. We use the word ami also in French, but copain is somebody who's a close friend. Uh, and it actually is a derivation of the word pain, which is bread, P-A-I-N-S, um, it's a person you break bread with. Yeah. And that's actually the wonderful part of learning another language because we never think about these things when we speak English all day. But sometimes I have to explain things in English to my partner. You know, and a lot of our words are actually from French um, or Latin, as are theirs. And it's very interesting learning French because you learn all, why the words are a certain way. And it makes sense and it also trains your brain to think differently. So learning about things like merde or pisonly makes you think like the French. What do the French think about wine? A friend of mine grew up in Paris, and his attitude is very relaxed about wine. Yes. You just drink wine, and you don't worry about it too much, and 
as long as it's not too expensive and he buys cases of wine for six or eight yeah. bucks a bottle from a friend of his mm-hmm. who has a vineyard. It's not the science and the grading and point system. Is that true? No. Is that how yes. they think about it? That's absolutely true. And it, it's funny when I come back to the States, especially with my partner, and he wants to order all these glasses of wine and they're, you know, $14 each plus tax and tip. I'm like, no, 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 Okay. Because in France, wine is considered – it's kind of like a baguette or a croissant. It's considered almost a right to have these things available at a reason – they should be affordable. So – you know, there's expensive wine in France and so forth. But, you know, the average price paid for a bottle of wine in France is €3.20, Euros 20 cents, hmm. which is about three fifty. And wine is not considered, like you mentioned, a sort of hallowed bottle that you're going to sit around and, you know, savor. A lot of times people just buy a bottle of wine at the supermarket. You know, it's €4 Euros and they have that for dinner. And I actually – I love that. Uh, I don't like when food is too elevated. I think, it, you know, it's great that – it doesn't have to be the best quality, but it's good enough. What about the influx of American and English chefs into Paris in the last 10 years? A lot of the hot new restaurants actually have Americans behind the, yes. uh, the stoves. or Japanese. And, and is, that, is that just accepted? Is that changed people's view of us or of the restaurant business in Paris? It kind of has. You know, it's a little hard, you know, because there's almost two Parises. There's the older people and then there's the younger people. And the younger people don't have the those ideas fixed in their head so much about what makes a proper meal. You know, you don't have to have three courses. You don't have to have this, this, and this. You can have a bowl of noodles for dinner from a Vietnamese place, and that's dinner. Um, but there has been a big influx of Americans, myself included, over the last decade or so forth that have really – um, change the food scene there. And, you know, that's not to say, um, you know, that we've come in and saved the day. There was an article of, of that subject in the New York Times a couple of years ago that a lot of people got riled up about. But I was talking about this with a French journalist recently. I said, well, you know, we were actually influenced by you. You know, for example, I worked at Chez Panisse. We wanted to do what the French do, go shopping every day, go to the market, you know, have a potager, a vegetable garden, go back to the earth, drink wine, have a good time, eat garlic. So we were very influenced by France and Italy and European culture in a lot of ways and were intrigued by it. And so we took what they did and brought it to America. So all these farm-to-table restaurants are very, you know, cuisine du marché, cuisine of the market. So people like me moved to France, and we were, like, looking for that. We were like, oh, I, you know, I want to ha- be part of this whole cuisine du marché. I want to go to the market and go to restaurants and eat all this fresh food from the local farmers. And it didn't really exist, especially in Paris, that much anymore. A lot of it had been sort of pushed aside by places that needed to make more money or that were using pre-made ingredients and so forth. So over the past few years, that idea of Cousine du Marché or Farm to Table sort of returned to France, you know, through people who are American or Japanese or French. A lot of, you know, young French people are doing the same thing. What would you miss the most if you came back to, say, San Francisco from Paris? I miss, I would really miss the conviviality of daily life, just walking out my door, I mean, walking to the market and knowing the people there, the vendors and seeing people I know, um, seeing my neighbors and so forth. Because I wrote, you know, in the book, it was a certain period of time, which, you know, at the end of the book, I wrote this was a certain period of my life. 
and it's not necessary. You know, I've become much more integrated now, and you know, I talk about how that happened as well. But you know, Paris is kind of like a big village with lots of little villages around it, and I really feel like I'm a part of my village now. I know the people at the cafe at the end of my street, and you know, they look out for me if I have a delivery or something. And that's something I would really miss because a lot of those things we expect in America. We expect to go into a store and they're, you know, to have service, and we expect them to do this. And we're just saying yes, yes, yes. Um, when the French say yes, they really mean it. And that's something that's that's a big difference. When they say they're going to do something, they do it. Um, so that's what I would miss. But there are things about America that I miss as well. Like everything's very easy and convenient. You, you talk in the book, it's really interesting about you, you get a fresh baguette and you talk about ju- how to take off the tip of yeah. the baguette <laughs> to get it just enough and just the right of the outside and the inside. Could you just explain that to me? Because that seemed a little, you know, uh, you, had a, you had a very particular mm-hmm. way of doing it, shall I say. Well, you know, we, you and I write about food and talk about it a lot. And but there's all those little details, like when you get a hamburger when it's just right, and you talk about like, oh, the bun, you know, when it's toasty inside, and that little crispness hits your lip is a crunch. You know, those kind of details we don't think about unless you're a food writer, and then you and I think about it and so forth. So I was thinking about like, why? How do you get that that end of the baguette off? And you don't you don't just pull it off, but you have to grab just the right amount. <laughs> so you get some of the crumb, which is sort of the inside of the bread with the crusty corner, but you don't want to get too much of it because you don't want to have a big mouthful of bread. You kind of want the crust, but you don't want to have too much crust because otherwise you've got this hard thing in your mouth that you can't chew and you're going to break a tooth. So you got to get it just right and get the torque just right and know exactly sort of where to snap it off. After 58 or 59 years, David Libowitz is finally, <laughs> this is what your life has turned into. How much of the end of a baguette should you snap off as, as you walk out the door of the bakery? Well... Uh, they're worse things to worry about, right? David Libowitz, thank you. Laparte, uh, The Delights and Disasters of Making Paris My Home. Great book. Thank you, David. Oh, thank you. It's always nice to talk to you. Pleasure. Thanks. That was Paris-based food writer David Libowitz. You know, there's a T-shirt in Paris that reads, quote, J'aime rien, je suis parisien, which means I love nothing, I am Parisian. You know, the French can be viewed as a suspicious lot out to take advantage of foreigners, Or, if you're a bit more like Leibovitz, you might find that the French love the details of life, the back and forth, the rich intricacies of a complex social interaction. In Paris, life is slower and more bureaucratic, but, some say, richer and more human. As they say, it's not getting there, it's the journey. And if you want to live in Paris, you better learn to enjoy every single step. Right now, I'm heading into the Milk Street Kitchen to chat with Milk Street's editorial director, J.M. Hirsch, about this week's recipe. Recently, J.M. took a trip to Cape Malay in South Africa and learned how to make a very special curry. J.M., how are you? Great. You just got back from Cape Town. I always wonder if you're just going on vacation or you're actually doing work <laughs> I'm actually for on us. the beach. Uh, and you came back with a curry dish, which was totally different than anything I've ever had. So tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, and you know, and to understand this dish, you need to know a little bit about South Africa, because South Africa ha- it suffered through kind of a colonialism time warp for a while. You know, they were a mix of, of settlers from India, Indonesia, Africa, and Europe. And then apartheid hit, and that kind of isolated the nation for 
decades. There was very little trade. There was very little influence from outside. So all of those cuisines that came together during the colonial period stuck, and they stayed, and they evolved separately from the rest of the world cuisine. The result of all of that is this neighborhood in Cape Town called the Bokap neighborhood, and it's a Muslim district that was kind of reinforced by apartheid. And what is fascinating about it, beyond just the visuals, by the way, I should add that the houses here, the distinguishing factor of this neighborhood is all the houses are bright blues, greens, yellows, purples. I mean, you walk in, it's like a technicolor explosion. So, but there's also an explosion of flavor, and that's what was really cool. They draw on Indian influences and use the same ingredients as Indian cooking, and, but what's called Cape Malay cuisine, they use them differently. And the result of cooking with them differently is that they get very different flavors from what we would consider a typical curry. We think of curries as kind of heavy and rich, and what they do is they take the same ingredients, and instead of toasting them and instead of grinding them, which is more common in South Asian cuisines, they use them whole and they don't toast them. They just simmer them in liquid. And the result is a much lighter, brighter, more, more flavorful curry in many ways because it really permeates the other ingredients in the dish. So I was a little worried this would be like a, an insipid British version of an authentic <laughs> Indian curry, but you're saying that's not true. No, not at all. In fact, what we think of as the insipid British versions are, you know, the, the real heavy, dense curries. And the English actually had very little influence over this particular cuisine in South Africa, even though they have a, a formidable presence in, in South Africa. Uh, that wasn't really their role in this cuisine. And so what you get is, again, very familiar flavors, if you're familiar with true Indian curries and Southeast Asian flavors, but then you don't get the heft of them. You get the much lighter, much brighter, much cleaner flavors. I met with a woman, Faldela Tolker, in the Bokap neighborhood who taught me how to make Cape Malay curry. And it was really fascinating to watch because she starts with all the sorts of things that I was expecting, you know, fennel, cumin, ginger, cinnamon. But she just threw them in whole and then at the end of the dish, she pulls them out and throws them away. Their job's done. So they flavored it, they flavored it lightly, but uh, brightly, and, and then she gets rid of them. So we're not in Cape Town. Not anymore, unfortunately. Anymore. <laughs> so we're in Boston. <laughs> so how do you make Cape Malay curry here at Milk Street? Actually, it's pretty easy because everything's pretty widely available, and, and it's a simple process. You know, we start out by browning two pounds of boneless, skinless chicken thighs. We're going to throw in some garlic, some chilies, some fresh ginger. Again, that ginger is going to come out at the end but some tomatoes, some cinnamon sticks, some bay leaves, some fennel, and some cumin, and we're gonna just cook that until it's very fragrant. We're gonna add some broth or some water, doesn't really matter, and simmer that for about 25 minutes. Then we're gonna throw in some potatoes, again, a very common Indian curry ingredient, and simmer that until tender. Now we pull out the chicken, and we're gonna shred it into bite-sized pieces. We throw it back into the pot, hit it with some lemon and mint, and it's done. So this is an hour or so? Uh, not even about 45 minutes, and the key step is to put in the spices whole and take them out whole. J.M., every time I ask you how long it takes, everything's 45 minutes. In your world, everything <laughs> In my is, world, is all fast. Except how long it takes to drink a cocktail. <laughs> J.M., thank you very much. A, a Cape Malay curry, bright, fresh, and takes less than an hour, and uh, it is delicious. Thank you. Thanks so much. You can find our recipe for Cape Malay curry and photos of my trip to Cape Town at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break.
You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair, which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California. And what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. 
That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now, it's my favorite part of the show. We take some of your calls uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Anna. Hi, Anna. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Blue Island, Illinois. Mm-hmm. I have this question about figs. Okay. We're ready. I was recently visiting my brother, and he has a fig tree or a shrub, and I was picking figs, and I found a recipe to make fig jam, but I couldn't answer the question whether or not I needed to peel the fig. Nothing I looked at, nobody I talked to knew the answer, and... The reason I had the question was because when a friend of mine, I gave him a fig, he automatically peeled it and ate it. And I said, oh, why did you do that? He said, I don't know. That's just the way I've always eaten them. So I I just wondered. I just bought some figs last week, actually, and ate them whole. The skin is pretty tender, right? Yeah, the skin's very tender. I've never heard of peeling figs. Me neither. He said it doesn't taste good? No. No, he said that's just the way he's always no. done it. didn't know why. Hmm. Unless you're worried about there being sprayed or something with, you no, know, No, I don't see any need. It's no. a tender skin. It's completely edible. And both batches of jam that I made turned out just fine. Yeah. So this is curious. with the skins? With the skins. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. how you'd make fig jam, with the skins. Maybe there's a kind of skin that has a different <laughs> No, and that seems like skin. an awful lot of work to me. Yeah. So, no, don't peel them. Okay, I won't. Yeah. Thank you. Be happy. <laughs> that goes in the same category as peeling pearl onions. Yeah. Oh, I don't please. think so. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're not doing that. No. Okay. No, I think you're good to go. Don't peel them. Don't worry yes. about it. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Our pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is uh, Andy from Shaker Heights, Ohio. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm great. Chris, how are you? I'm good. How can we help you? So many recipes call for, you know, 
especially anything stovetop preparation, slicing the garlic, putting it in, and you're admonished, you know, don't get it too brown or it'll right. get bitter. So you want to, you know, just saute it lightly. But then it goes on to say, then add your onions and add your peppers and add this and add that. And by the time everything is right. kind of cooked up, cooked. my garlic is kind of brown and crispy. You know, I'm just wondering, you know, how you guys approach that and what suggestions you have. I mean, I've started to think about almost infusing the oil with the yes. garlic and then taking it out and then adding everything else in. Man, I'm with you. I First of all, recipes shouldn't start with a garlic. That's a mistake. I agree. You should start with the onions. And then at the very last minute or two, you'd put the garlic in. I also hate that strong flavor of overcooked garlic. So I'll just take cloves and mash them, smash them. Obviously, the paper comes off the outside. And I put it in the dish and cook, and then I don't serve the garlic cloves. I take them out, which is sort of what you were suggesting. It's you're flavoring it. Another thing at Milk Street we do is take a whole head of garlic, cut the quarter top off, put it in the super stew, let it cook for a couple hours, whatever, take it out and then squeeze the inside of the garlic back into the pot and it's very sweet mm. because you've killed off that enzyme and so you don't have that chemical reaction. So oh, I'm totally with idea. you, but I would never start a recipe no. by the, with the garlic because you're absolutely right. It's going to overcook. So it's the recipe's wrong in that case, I think, right, Sarah? Right. I mean, I would do one of two things and I generally start with cold oil and smash garlic and then bring it up to temp. And when the garlic starts to turn vaguely golden, I get it out of there. And then I've got nice infused oil. Well, I do that or, like Chris said, I always start with the onion. And if, let's say I'm even making something with, say, shrimp or chicken, almost the last thing I add is the garlic. And I only give it one minute in the pan. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And so many recipes... You know, recommend, you know, getting your oil up to heat before you throw. So, no. I don't get it. No. Yeah. doesn't make any sense. Somebody in the 50s yeah. figured that <laughs> Didn't out. Didn't know Everybody what they were doing. Them, yeah. Man. So we're all on the same team here, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, thank you. All okay, right. Thanks thank for you. Take care. Bye, Bye. Andy. Mm, bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is using meat as a flavoring. Now, we all know most American recipes, they call for meat, use it as a main ingredient. But, you know, most recipes outside of Northern Europe call for smaller amounts of meat, and meat is usually used more as a flavoring than as a main ingredient. This means that rice, beans, grains, vegetables, or even greens make up the foundation of a recipe, and then meat is added to add both protein and flavor. For example, a typical soup from the Middle East or a noodle dish from China might call for a pound of meat to serve four to six people. Now, here at Milk Street, we're not on the health food wagon, but we do appreciate the notion of meat as a key ingredient, but not the key ingredient. So this makes for a more interesting mix of flavors and textures, and okay, to be honest, it really is a smarter, better way to both cook and eat. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to regular contributor Dan Pashman, of the Sporkful podcast. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you doing? I'm well. So lately, Chris, I've been super fascinated with this new-ish field of research called gastrophysics. Are you familiar with gastrophysics? No. It's, I, I don't. You know, we tend to think of taste as something that happens on our tongues right. and in our noses. But there's this increasing body of research that shows that actually taste happens in our brains. Right. And taste is actually this sort of conglomeration 
of many dozens of different inputs that your brain is taking in when you eat that can influence how, how you perceive something to taste. And gastrophysics is the study of the many different sensory tidbits that we take in as we eat and how it affects taste and the eating experience. Well, it certainly has a good name. It's, you know, astrophysics, uh, yeah, yeah. gastrophysics. <laughs> Even the littlest things like the weight of the cutlery. If the forks and knives at a restaurant are heavier, people will not only say the food tastes better, but they will say that they're willing to pay more for it. Uh, so, like, when you, you know, when you host a dinner party, Chris, I don't know, I, I imagine you're the kind of guy that has, like, six different spoons at the setting, and I'm not sure which one to use for which course, and I, I get very self-conscious. Does that sound about right? I have soup spoons and teaspoons, and I don't have enough, and I can never find them. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not a Victorian table setting in my okay. household. Okay. So. And, and how heavy are they? Well, they're not very heavy. I, I was just thinking I should go out and buy some lead forks, right? There you go. Yeah. You absolutely should. And then when you have a dinner party, what kind of music do you like to play? I don't. I, I actually, I, I'm revolted by the idea of dinner party music. <laughs> oh, I forgot that you're also revolted by joy. That's true. In general, <laughs> I despise joy. You know, I, I used to do that. And then I just preferred the silence as, as the background noise. I don't know. Do, do you play music? I do like music. Sometimes I get a little mentally tied up in getting the food out and I forget to put music on. But... The gastrophysics researchers, especially this guy, Charles Spence in Oxford in the UK, he uh, has done a lot of research on background music. And he has a bunch mm -hmm. of different conclusions that I think are so fascinating. One is classical music. When classical music is playing in a restaurant, people will spend more money because right. they think that they're at a classier place. They'll order a more expensive bottle of wine, et cetera. When faster music is played, people will eat faster. So, for instance, at Chipotle, during the lunch rush, they will play faster music to try to get people to eat and get out faster so they can turn the tables over because it gets crowded. And then in the off hours, they play something slower because they want to have a certain number of people there to have an, a certain ambiance. Uh, also, with, with various different cuisines that represent different ethnicities, if the music is what we perceive to be culturally appropriate to that cuisine, we will rate the food on average as being more authentic. So this idea of optimizing profits in a restaurant by the cutlery and the music, how does that uh, impact your decisions at home? Well, it does teach us that, you know, if you, if you have heavier forks and knives in your home, people will think that your food is better. They'll think that it's fancier. And in fact, you can even change not, not only how much people like the flavor of a food, but you can also change how sweet or bitter a food tastes. When you serve food mm. on round plates or plates with rounded edges and bright colored plates, the food will taste sweeter. Also, higher-pitched huh. music makes the food taste sweeter, whereas dark colors, uh, low bassy music, sharp edges, all of these things are things we associate with bitterness. Well, th there's one other strategy that works, yes. which is have people over at 7, don't serve dinner to 8.30 and feed them nothing in the interim. <laughs> and I, I find they really enjoy their food. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is another option. So, so what else did the researchers come up with? One of the other things I found so fascinating is that a lot of this is explained through evolution. We've, we've evolved this ability that when we see food, our brain makes a split-second calculation. How much energy can I get from that food and how easy will it be for me to consume it? And that even translates when we see a picture of food. And so, for instance, picture a can of soup on the, on the shelf in the supermarket. There's a picture on the label of a bowl of soup and there's a spoon next to the soup. And the spoon is on the right side of the bowl. Now, if you're right-handed, that's the side you would want the spoon to be on. 
And so a righty who sees the spoon on that side will be more likely to purchase that soup because they can imagine themselves eating it more readily. Whereas a left-handed person would have trouble imagining themselves reaching, it's unwieldy for them to reach across to the right side to pick up that spoon. In fact, as, as we buy more and more of our groceries online, you can foresee a time in the not-too-distant future when your computer will know whether you're right-handed or left-handed. And when you go to buy soup, they will move the spoon in the image to the right or left side to make you more likely to buy it based on your personal data profile. Yeah, I, I think the, the original point about the brain is interesting because I think odors, which are most of our taste of food, occupy the same part of the brain as both memory and emotion. And so... Those smells, as they come up the olfactory channel, connect with our past and connect with our feelings. And that's why food can have such strong reactions, I think. That's absolutely right. Are there certain smells that trigger an especially strong emotional reaction for you, Chris? Uh, I always feel like you're always trying to like, like get me on the couch here. Uh, yeah, there, <laughs> there's actually a smell of a red berry on a bush in the fall that uh, brings me back to one of my first memories. You didn't think you'd get a personal thing, did you? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised but delighted. That's a happy memory. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so the answer is uh, your cutlery, the, the, the shape of your plates, the color of your plates, the kind of music you play, all of those things can affect the success of your next dinner party. Yes, our, our brains are constantly taking an input that determine how much we enjoy the eating experience. And you might not always be aware of what's influencing you. So emotion, memory, and the weight of your fork. Uh, Dan Pashman, thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Scientists now believe that smell is the most powerful sense of all. By mixing and matching 128 different odors, researchers now think that we may be able to identify up to one trillion different stimuli. Now that's 150,000 times more powerful than vision, which can detect just 7 million colors and 2.8 million times more sensitive than our limited sense of sound. So perhaps smell-o-vision wasn't such a bad idea after all. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.